Hello there and welcome to Hungry. Hungry is the podcast for the next wave of challenger food and drink brands looking to pour gasoline all over their growth. Each week we'll interview successful founders, thought leaders, unpack their lessons and provide you with the toolkit to scale super fast. I am Dan Pope, I am your host and without further ado, let's get started. Hello there, people and listeners of The Hungry Podcast. Today, I'm so, so, so excited um, to be joined by Roger Wade. Roger Wade is a creative entrepreneur who originally started Box Fresh, a streetwear brand back in the 90s, and then went on to create Box Park in 2010. Um, Box Park is a food and independent retail outlet that have sites in Shoreditch, Croydon, Wembley, with a new Box Hall uh, site, which is open in Bristol. I was actually there the other day. I absolutely love Box Park, Roger. Um, it's such a vibrant, um, kind of pulsating heartbeat of uh, of East London. The food's insane. The vibe's insane. Um, I remember discovering Black Bear Burger there, like or the brisket burger. It, it genuinely, genuinely changed my life. Um, so I am so, so excited for, com- for you for coming on today. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dan. I think you're being too generous. <laughs> um, so... <clears throat> In doing research for this for this conversation, um, I've kind of picked up on this kind of superpower you have, which is this like creative kind of gumption and emotional prudence to spot trends before everyone else. So if we go back to the 90s with, you know, when you were in New York with the streetwear stuff, bringing that into the UK, kind of with, with Box Park, spotting Shoreditch as the next kind of thing back in 2010, um, the ability to kind of, well, put food in and in the retailers into into shipping containers. That in of itself was 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 very prudent. Um, and I was listening to a podcast you did with uh, with Holly Tucker, which was was absolutely brilliant. And you said that uh, founders don't use emotional intelligence enough these days. I would love to kind of dive in and start with your childhood. Like, where do you think this ability to spot trends? came from and, and did your childhood play have a role to play in that wow straight in the deep end the <laughs> okay i mean i mean yeah let's let's i mean firstly i mean it's kind of you to say superpowers i wouldn't quite say superpower uh i wouldn't even say power i would just say that i'm in tune with my emotional intelligence which is you know for, for those viewers out there they're wondering what i mean by that it means I trust my own instinct. You know, I don't need to see something done for me for me to realise that could be, you know, a great idea. And and as as Steve Jobs said, I've sort of I can trace that back back through sort of connecting up the dots of my life. And you're you're dead right. It 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 does come from childhood or whatever. You know, it comes from. You know, not so much for me, childhood. Although, yeah, I'd say a bit childhood, but definitely in my early entrepreneurial career. And I'll explain why. You know, when and I, it, this might be a long answer, but go for it. Go for it. Go for it. I, I, I think a lot of people when they set up businesses, I think you've got to understand why you set up a business. And the reality with me was I set up a business because I got the sack in my first three jobs in advertising. You know, I was like, I really came to the conclusion after university, the age of about 22, that I was unemployable. And if I did employ myself, 
you know, no one's going to employ me. So um, my last job in advertising was working, I was working in New York as a copywriter and I wasn't teamed up with anyone and, you know, I was always a bit cheeky. So I was on the phone, they, had, they gave me a whole office with my phone. So I was just calling my mates back in England, you know, this is all pre-internet days. And they'd be saying, oh, get some of this American sportswear. And I'd send this American sportswear back. And then, you know, lo and behold, when I did get the sack, um, I went back to the UK and I, I didn't know what to do. But I had a box of all this American sportswear that I bought from Korean wholesalers in, in, in midtown Manhattan. And I just started selling it down a, a market. And then suddenly, you know, there was a lot of demand for it. It was, it was, it was, it was in the late 80s, I think, about. 88, 89 or something like that. And it literally sort of started to take off. And then the next minute I met some designers and Olaf uh, Parker and Sue Denny and, and together with my partner at that time, Ben Joseph, we started one of the first ever British streetwear brands, Box Fresh, okay? And literally at a time when streetwear wasn't big. And we, we built up that brand to you know, quite a sizable business over a sort of 15 to 18 year period and eventually sold out to, to, to Pentland who, who owned JD Sports and used to own Reebok. But what I learned from that experience was a couple of different things. When I first set up the brand and, and for those people that are thinking of setting up businesses and being entrepreneurs, I think you've got to realize why you're doing it. You've got to ask your why. And I'll be frank with you, in my first business, I think I was doing it for ego. You know, it was so, I suddenly was good at something. You know, I wasn't getting the sack. You know, all right, I was quite decent at cricket, but if I say so myself, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm suddenly good at something, you know, oh, Roger owns the streetwear brand, they're doing well, and it was good for my ego. And I, and I think this, you get a lot of people that set up businesses because of their, their ego. So when you talk about childhood, mm. the drive to succeed may become, came from the fact that, you know, I didn't end up doing the degree I wanted to do. I was going to maybe become a doctor. I ended up doing a degree in environmental science, never really went to any classes, ran clubs and... Thought I wanted to go into advertising, and actually, I didn't have the the, the, the social skills. Oh, not social skills, but the patience to work at a desk the whole day. Mm. So, you know, I, I went. I started my first business really to define myself. Now, what I learned. So that's the childhood bit. What I learned along the way was when I was running this fashion business, and certainly as it, it went on in time, we would produce nearly a 1,000 products a year. We couldn't – there wasn't a spreadsheet that was going to tell us how to design a jacket like this. You had to do it through feel. I had a team of designers, and we'd travel the world, and we might buy some samples. But, you know, in, at that time in streetwear, it was an unwritten rule. You never copied anyone, you know. So we were trying to outbeat each other. And as a result, he, I got used to trusting my taste because there wasn't 
I couldn't start like looking at data or anything like that to make this product. I had, in order to make, if I did design this shirt, I would have to do it from feel. So, so actually, that's something I carried forward. That's that's something that came with confidence. As you get to a stage where you start seeing your brand grow and grow and grow, and you start realizing that people like your taste, that you get self confidence. And I brought that self confidence with me in Box Park in terms of. I wanted to create something new. You know, I didn't need to look at what everyone else had done because that's what I was used to doing with Box Fresh. So in the case of Box Park, I actually had um, just a very simple idea for business, which was back in, you know, the early sort of 2000s. They were really talking about the death of the high street and stuff like that. But I always believed that people wanted to feel special. So I, I wanted to create a high street for independence. And then at the same time, I really built a store out of a container for Box Fresh, you know, a box, a box store. And, and a friend of mine happened to run a retail development. So all I really did was connect up the dots of my life, which was a home for independence built out of containers. And it was a retail development because my mate ran a retail development and he wasn't that smart. And if he could do it, I could do it. So it, it's weird. I look back now and it was this uh, connecting up the dots of my life. It was some of the things about my early childhood that got me to where I was at the end. But in the end, one of the things that's really put me in good stead is I've got a, a self-belief in my taste and I've, I've built that up over 20 or 30 years. I'm not saying I've got the best taste in the world, but I, I believe in my taste. So I had no, when I'm thinking I can create a whole pop-up mall from containers. And at the time, no one had ever built a pop-up mall from containers. I actually had to read a book about how to build from containers. I, I just believed I could do it. I was so naive. I actually, in retrospect, go, how the hell did I do that? You know, but that naivety sometimes helps. So I think the lessons that I'm trying to point out there mm. are mm. know your reason why for setting up in business. Really start to trust your emotional intelligence. Don't be frightened to create something new, okay? And just because it's, it hasn't been done before. It doesn't mean it can't be done again. And, and don't look at your mistakes as a bad thing. All my greatest, our best innovation came from mistakes. It really did. It was through us resolving those mistakes that we led to innovation because that's the nature of innovation. That's how things get created, you know. When Edison wants to create a light bulb, you know, it's not, he didn't have a light bulb moment. It sort of came about that way. You know, it came from a thousand different experiments he created to try and create light or whatever, you know, you just stumble across the idea. And I think in many ways I stumbled across the idea. So yeah, that's in a long winded way. That is my own journey and that's what connects it together. But I do, I'm a great believer in trusting your emotional intelligence. And I, I do believe there's too many people sort of coming out of, of business school or whatever, and, and they're just thinking, oh, I've been a business school, I'm going to be great at business. 
you're not going to be good at some aspects, but you know, in the end, if you don't have great product, you're not, you, know, you don't have great content, you're not going to exist and you've got to be obsessive about that content. So in my companies, I really promoted those people in my worlds, those people that maybe had some vision when it came to, to, to making product, when it came to marketing, because the business bit, we can always create for them, but it's, it's hard to find those guys. No, it's so true. And I think, I mean, I literally having this conversation the other day about um, kind of data's data decision-making has burned into the zeitgeist. And everyone's just like, everything has to be done data, data, data. And I think we're losing this ability and we'll, we'll unpack it in, in a sec, I think, in terms of what, well, as you said there, in terms of like trusting your gut. And I think the, the more, the more data that's kind of getting, we're getting pummeled with more and more data. It's like losing our ability to, to trust those gut instincts. Um, and it's, and that's, it's, it's really, really worrying. Um, but, but there was just so much um, in that. Explore that. Sorry. I've got to explore yeah, go that. With you, you know, because, you know, don't get me wrong. Like box fresh, we used to use data. So the data that we would use would be the best sellers. And what you would say is that, right. We've got to have versions of our best sellers, but that might've been only, 80% of our sales might have came from 20% of our range. So we might regurgitate 20% of our range. But then we would be create, creating 80% new product to find the new best sellers. And we'd have to do that from feel. And what worries me nowadays is that we're so obsessed with data and we're so, you know, we're, we're almost all following the same direction that there's not enough brave people who go, I don't think that direction makes sense. And, and, and no more is that relevant than here we are talking about the future of our high streets. And what we're doing is we're saying, well, the data is saying that everything is going online. It's all about Amazon. So guess what? I'm a property fund. I'm not going to invest in retail. I'm, mm. I, I don't believe retail, physical retail should exist. Whereas I'm completely different. I'm like led by the emotional intelligence of the customer. Because you know what? When my mum or my sister go out shopping, they don't bring a spreadsheet with them. They bring their feelings with them. You know, they like a top. It's because their eyes like it. You know, they touch and feel like it. You know, and I always remember that. And so I think we're in danger of becoming too obsessed with the data to the detriment of, of the existing businesses and the traditional businesses that are out there because I, I, I'm a great believer in the need for communities to come together. I'm a great believer in physical retail. I don't believe you can show content any better than in terms of physical retail. You can't, you know, until I get a website that can allow me to touch the fabric and put it on there and then it's never going to match a shop for me, you know? So I'm, I just think we've got to be really careful at this moment in time that, we don't get too obsessed with the data, and that's what I see happening. And we remember the emotional intelligence of the customer. No, I completely agree. And to kind of dig into that a bit further, Roger. So, for listeners of, of this podcast who are challenger food and drink brands who are, are getting, as I said, pummeled up by data, they're trying to use data to make decisions in a world that is so data drenched. How how can founders? cultivate better emotional intelligence are there are there any ways you've done it yeah i think by i mean you you, you do it through in, in my case you do it through sort of time and you start to 
and confidence. You start to realise over a period of time that when you start to trust your own feelings, that actually your own judgment can often be right. I mean, you know, with Steve Jobs that created the first Apple Mac, if he was copying IBM, no, he wouldn't. He would. He was trying to create a new future, which was based upon the graphical interface or something that he saw somewhere else and realised that he could use it in a different world. You know, when they first created the the, the iPod, you know, he he didn't go and look at a CD player. (laughs) He went, well, I'm going to create something new. And certainly when Elon Musk was was creating Tesla, I don't think he was looking at what General Motors were doing. So you've got to have belief. And I think when you really get that belief and that intuition that you've got, and you know that this is the right thing to do, you, you get real strength from it. And it, and, it, and it does concern me nowadays that, you know, if, if you're in the food and drink industry and all you're doing is regurgitating what everyone else is doing, well, guess what? I don't think you're going to succeed because in order for small companies to succeed, they've got to have product that really stands out or they've got to have incredible marketing that gets some more traffic to that product than your traditional businesses. So you've got to do something new. No, no, it's so interesting. I always learn as I as I as we recall these conversations, but our best performing product was actually a mistake. We burnt it in a rugby club kitchen. We literally burnt the nuts. And our founder had a well, I suppose what you're saying here, Roger, is emotional intelligence. He was like, screw it, let's yeah. blitz it up. We created deep roast peanut butter, which no one had or you'll try it when you when you try the samples. It's super yeah. intense. And actually now all the big brands in peanut butter have now followed suit. So again, I suppose you're right. It's, it's about connecting the dots of your life, which is, which you've just said there, but also that intuition to, 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 to I don't know. There's something, I don't know how it's really, it's quite but an ethereal thing, isn't it? Trust there's, there's, your emotional yeah. intelligence. Trust your emotions. Yeah. If you yeah. like it, somebody else will like it. And you just don't have the confidence to do that. And that's what I was going to, where I wanted to kind of dig here, um, Roger, is that you seem now to have this this huge confidence in your emotional ability and obviously, you know, everything you've done. But um, there's there's there must be a place when, you know, you were, you've been fired from those three jobs. You're in New York you, yeah. and you must have felt quite, I don't know, I would have personally lacked confidence and felt insecure. Like, how did you feel in that? Because I think listeners will really potentially empathize with the Roger when he was in New York, he'd been fired from three jobs. Like how did you feel and how did you begin to build that confidence to where you are now, which is supreme emotional intelligence, I would say. Well, not supreme emotional intelligence, but I'm, I'm more confident in myself and more confident in my decisions. You know, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it wasn't an easy journey for me because I mean, it sort of, it, it almost, for me, it sort of went back to deep-rooted insecurity when, you know, I, my parents went to Malaysia. You know, I was originally born in London. I lived in London for my first three or four years in, in Lambeth and South London. My uh, father came from a quite big land-owning family in Malaysia. My mum was a very poor Irish, you know, woman that he met in when he was studying at UCD. And we went back to Malaysia. 
And, you know, unfortunately, the marriage didn't work out. And I sort of came back from Malaysia after maybe having a, a lovely life with servants and a big house to living in a council estate in South London. And I, I think definitely for the first sort of 10 years, say when I was eight, nine, going up to 18, if you really want to, I was, I was really trying to fit in. Yeah, I was good at sports and I was academically good, although I don't believe I really reached my full potential. And I, I don't think I really excelled at university. I didn't do what I really wanted to do. But then, you know, I had this light bulb moment with myself, which is when I started Box Fresh, you know, suddenly, you know, with my partner, suddenly good at something. And it was weird. There was a stage at Box Fresh, which I always trust the designers to do the designs. And, and the designers we had were incredible designers, but they were maybe too forward thinking, too out there. They're almost too creative, which you can get sometimes. You need a quite a, a nice balance between commercial and creative and not just too creative. And actually, we, we took up, off as a business when I took over the sort of design function of Boxfresh and started to run the design team as opposed to always abdicating that responsibility because I didn't have the confidence to do it. And then you start to get the confidence in the decisions. And when you start seeing that actually your decisions and your feelings are right, it's just an incredible moment. You suddenly just have total belief. You know, I don't know if it's your ego going crazy, but you have this total belief in, 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 in yourself and what you can do. And, you know, I, I did in my later years, I went from being very, insecure I'd say when I was younger to having real belief in my feelings and I've never really looked back in terms of having that self-belief when it comes to business I don't think in all aspects I don't think you know but definitely when it came to, to business I really have that self-belief and I really understand that it is trusting my emotional intelligence an important part of me and I, I understand my makeup from my my mother's side and my dad's side. And I've got this weird combination. I'm half Irish, half Malaysian, Chinese. I've got this sort of Chinese side of me, which is very analytical, but I've got this mad creative side of me, which is the Irish. And, and when they're in tune, it's, it's a, it's a good combination. When they're not in tune, it's, it's not so good. <laughs> I bet. Okay, okay, swinging, um, swinging, swinging yeah. to Irish could be a problem. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> when I was youngest, my, you know, went into Irish mode too often. So, I mean, they used to say, I, I think in, in, in Ireland, like shouting is like just another form of communication. Whereas to anyone who's English, it was like, what's he shouting about? What is that? <laughs> hi there guys uh thank you so so much for listening to this i really appreciate it genuine one of my favorite episodes today i think roger has just got so much emotional intelligence um and i think for all of us on this challenger brand journey implementing emotional intelligence whether it's speaking to buyers or managing people and building teams it's so so important so i really hope you get lots of value from this episode um, and can implement it immediately into your business just a quick one ask my amazing sponsor momo uh, their hops or limited edition hops is still live on the website it's absolutely banging um, it's with orbit brewery 
a great little brewery and combined with Momo, two things that make something absolutely perfect. I implore you to go onto Momo's website, momo-kombucha.com, grab yourself a pack and we've even got a little favour uh, or a little discount code, I should say. Uh, if you type in hungry 15 at the checkout, you'll get 15% off. Highly recommend trying it. It's really, really, really delicious. And yeah, look, I'd be so, so grateful. It really would make my day. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review, preferably five stars, not going to lie, and, and subscribe as well. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so, so much and enjoy the rest of the episode. No, that's really, really interesting. And I think um, what what you said there about these, these I think all founders, entrepreneurs, and, and actually driven people, it's coming from a place of insecurity somewhere in the matrix. I mean, I suppose for me, it was, you know, being like being predicted crap grades, all these things that just drive you to, but you've got you to use that as a, as I suppose for listeners, you've got to use it as a furnace to keep propelling them forward. Um, How did your university career to you? I mean, you were chatting to me about your university career before. You were like ending up studying something you didn't really enjoy. And as a result of that, you spent a lot of the time partying or running parties. That's what I was doing. So, you know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't running parties. I was just going to parties. But, yeah. Well, no, but I think as well, it's like, if, if for me, it was like, this, this just isn't like turn it this isn't turning me on in it at all so it's like just rather go out and get booze to be honest but i think through that yeah through that i learned that it's through that sort of struggle and insecurity i definitely found what i want to do which is ultimately is food and, and now i suppose this as well doing these podcasts um so so when you said you finally found you were good at, finally found you were good at something what was that something what was the thing roger wade was was better at I think, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I've got a strong visual eye. So, you know, I had a love of streetwear and a love of clothing. That's why I was doing it. So, you know, it was trusting my sense of judgment when it came to clothing. I mean, I mean, to give you a, a couple of stories, I mean, to give you an example, we started streetwear right, right at the very beginning when it was only us, maybe Duffers of St. George, and uh, maybe Mau Mau were, were the only guys around. Maybe to a little extent, sort of Komodo, because it, it wasn't really streetwear, but it was definitely around the same sort of time. And, uh, you know, we used to, I remember back in the day, selling in New York to a little small store called Union, which was about 100 square foot. And that guy went on to found Supreme. And I think their recent, recent valuation was $2 billion. But it was like, it was an day one of doing it and I, I guess what I realized then was trusting my own taste and my own judgment about something and when you run a fashion brand you're not just doing fashion you're doing trade shows you're selling international so you really learn the, the skills of business so um you know I guess that there wasn't so much a, a a one moment I just I just became increasingly successful in it and the more and more I trusted myself. The more and more mm. successful I was, and the more and more we tried to do things new, actually, that proved successful. You know, it just, I didn't, as I said before, didn't really look at anyone else. And then I think with Box Park, I think where things changed is I started to really mature as an entrepreneur. And I think that sort of, 
sometimes uncontrolled passion, I started to tame. And it was when I really started to, to look at other ways of becoming a better entrepreneur. And I think I became a better entrepreneur. So by that, I think I was a pretty poor uh, leader. You know, I think you get great entrepreneurs, but they don't necessarily make great leaders. So I think Elon Musk and Steve Jobs are great examples of that, as they all are, are also great examples of starting business because of a low self-esteem. So Steve Jobs adopted, Elon Musk bullied at school. You know, they, they, they had something driving them that needed to prove they were the best. You know, even someone like Richard Branson, I think I've read in his autobiography that, you know, he's one of the poorest kids at, at Stowe. I'm not, I'm not sure that's a, a contradiction, but... Yeah, you know, it certainly is, yeah. And that's why he went into business. He wanted to prove himself. So, you know, I think what, what I've realised is, is a, firstly going back to that, that sort of ego side, but, but also just trusting your instinct is... is, is absolutely key absolutely so so kind of just what what you've discussed there which i think for for our listeners is well my listeners sorry is really pertinent is this just don't look at what anyone else is doing but you know what you said earlier about don't look steve jobs didn't look at the walkman for it to create to create the ipod i think in our sort of fmcg challenger brand spheres um there's lots of there's this kind of always almost paranoia of looking at the competition and what i've learned well i'm learning from you is like actually no if you'd look at the if you'd look, looked at the competition there wouldn't be box park right exactly. so i think yeah, yeah yeah exactly so i think i think there's anyone listening to this get potentially get away from constantly you know checking your bloody um competitors instagram like every 24 hours a day it's just pointless and futile so that that's absolutely brilliant and i i, I really appreciate something new or better because I'm yeah. not sure you're going to compete in terms of, or you've got some great marketing. Like, you know, if, if you are a food influencer, of course you've got an, an advantage compared to everyone because you've got traffic. So then you can then, you know, you can go and do a vegan burger. That's just like a normal vegan burger. And it probably trade better than in other places because you've got the traffic. So you've either got to have the traffic or you've got to have the content because you don't have the conversion business side of it, because that's what other businesses do. So you've got to be obsessed about your content and you've got to be obsessed about your traffic. So when you, sorry, when you say obsessed about your content and traffic, I, I, your, your online content and then the traffic's the footfall coming to your, to your store or what's yeah. the difference? Sorry. Okay. I'm really glad you asked that. Okay. Cause this, it, so, you know, I've been a retailer for 30 plus years, but I actually only think there's three, things you need to to be good at to be a good retailer it doesn't matter whether it's online or in physical retail i hate the word the fact i have to use the word physical retail to distinguish between the two but anyway let's say that okay yeah yeah and there's only three things that matter and firstly is content right if you haven't got great content you won't exist so by that an example of Box Park, our content is our food and drink and our events and our play, yeah? And our environment. That's our content that we present to the customer, okay? In the case of peanut butter, it's the taste of that peanut butter or the packaging of that peanut butter, okay? 
Right. But you can have the best content in the world, but if no one sees that content, you're not going to exist. So traffic is really important. So if you've got a store, you know, yeah, sometimes it works to put a store in a back alley that no one sees and you have this discovery thing. But 99 out out of uh, 100 times, you need to have a store in a good footfall location. Or you need to create footfall to your online store, okay? So you've got to create traffic. So if I'm a food influencer, I've already got loads. I know guys that that run that big, you know, I don't know, YouTube influencers, and they they make products or they make books or whatever. Yeah, of course they're going to do well because they've got traffic. So all they're doing is putting that traffic to any their product that they've got, you know. Mm. And then finally, you've got conversion, which is you've got this good content, you've created traffic to it, and then you've got to turn that into sales. Mm. That's the fundamentals of retail. And what, what I like to talk about, and it's, it's nothing more. So don't get too obsessed with the business side of things. Because if you haven't got the content, you haven't got the traffic, you won't exist. So in, in, in our company, in, in when I used to run Box Fresh, and certainly now in Box Park, we put content people and marketeers really high up because they're fundamental to our business. And it's weird because back in the day, actually, there's a revolution in the, in the British High Street because people like River Island were some of the first people that actually created roles like creative director, you know, of before the companies were run by business people told the creatives what product they wanted, which is absolutely crazy. Crazy. They sort of changed the model and suddenly said, no, the creators should tell the business people what product they want. So in those companies out there, really elevate your guys that do creativity and do marketing because there's loads of people that can do the business, right? But without great content, without great marketing, you won't exist as a business in terms of retail and it's fundamental. No, completely. And I think it's exactly the same with with challenger food and drink brands so so on that what would you say is the hardest or with the the well your yeah what would you say is the hardest out of content traffic and conversion that most businesses get wrong like what's the hardest the, the uh, it, it's it's not as simple as that you just can't be bad at any one of those you've got to be great at all of them or right. you've got to be at least good at them you can't be weak at any of them like if you've got the greatest greatest product let's say that product is peanut butter it's a mm. great tasting peanut butter peanut butter in your case and it's a it's a really good price point okay well if you've got if it's not on shelves that everyone can see then it's pointless you know if it's only in a few little sort of little foods independent food stores you're never going to have any traction you've got to make sure you get traction drive. people got to know that brand Okay, and then then even if you've got it in a good supermarket, so you've got it into Waitrose, how do people know that brand in Waitrose? How do they know what that brand stands for? So you've got to market that brand. You've got to make sure that people understand that. So that content and that traffic and that positioning is, is everything. And then finally, it's about the business of selling it, you know. Mm-hmm. You've got to have the basics there because you just won't exist. It's That's absolutely brilliant. It's, um, it's I've kind of... The, the, the three of them are inextricably intertwined. I think what you were saying about 
about connecting the dots of your life and probably like a macro yeah. on a life level in terms of this business philosophy of content traffic conversion, connecting those dots is really, really interesting. I think for us at the beginning, we had a great product, horrendous traffic, horrendous conversion. And only now after, you know, again, I suppose, well, just work, working, working, working is those things we're still way, way off where we need to be, but they're coming into play quite nicely. Um, no, that's, that's brilliant. Roger. Yeah. Like we can take an example. Let's take examples of an example I've never really talked about. Let's take an example of it. Okay, a couple of darling examples. Let's take Gymshark, okay? I think one of the clever things about Gymshark, it's direct to internet, isn't it? It's a, yeah. an incredible, I don't own it, but effectively you buy it direct, right? And they, so they were creating great organic traffic themselves, okay? But their product was also strong and the price points were strong. So they had a unique business model. And because they were fully focused on online traffic, as ASUS was fully focused on being pure play, they generated more and more traffic. It wasn't so much that their product was better than Nike or Lululemon in the case of Gymshark or, you know, ASOS's product was better than than. Top man's or top shops, it wasn't. It was that they were very good at traffic. And then conversely, you've got other guys that have just got fantastic product. And as a result of that fantastic product, they get a lot of traffic that they create from it, you know? So let, let's say Selfridges, you know, they've got a fantastic name. If a product goes into Selfridges, you almost think it's going to be a great product, you know? And that creates its own traffic. But you've got to think about those fundamentals when it comes to retail. And, and it, it, it's sort of digressing. That brings us on to the topic of people talk about the internet as being the only way of retail. That's why I don't believe in that. Yes, the internet is here is a game changer. But is it the only channel? No. Because I believe that physical retail, and people certainly like Steve Jobs did, and certainly Elon Musk did when they invested in stores, Elon Musk was selling cars in the in in Westfields, you know. Apple was doing their churches, which were their their their, their Apple superstores. But they realised that you could show that content better in a store than you could ever do online. You could go in and try this Apple Watch and play with it and experiment it, and you can't really do that online, mm. you know. So they realised that the content is no more enriching place to show content than physical retail. You know, I often equate to buying online. It's like watching fireworks and, on TV. It's not like the real deal. You know, so what I argue is the content that you can show in a, in a 300, 360 degree experience like a store is unmatched. If you go into a Brompton store and experiment with that bike for the first time and get it out of that store, tell them you're never going to get that online. Mm. You're never going to get it online. That's fascinating. Content is, you can never show content better than the physical store. And then also, also you can create really cost-efficient traffic in a physical store because it costs a lot of money to get traffic online with Google AdWords. But sometimes... You can use physical traffic to physical retail to create your traffic by having influencers there, by having a pop-up store, you know, and actually that's creating traffic, that's creating noise. 
Well, that's cost-efficient traffic. And then finally, you've got conversion. In physical retail will convert normally at about one in 10 customers. Online, you convert at one in 100 customers, and probably 50% of that are returning your product. So again, this is sort of now joining up the stories that we're talking about, yeah. which is we talked about um, trusting your emotional intelligence. You've got fund managers out there going, it's all online. We're selling our physical retail, X, Y, and Z. But I've just said to you, here's, I'm trying to, to balance that up with my own emotional intelligence and other people's emotional intelligence and go, but I like shopping in stores. And other people like shopping in stores. And if my, if my mum was alive, when she was buying a vegetable, she didn't really want them delivered because she wanted to see those vegetables. So it goes back. You've got to trust your emotional intelligence to go, I'm not quite buying into that direction. I'm going to go over in this direction. And that's, that's where I am. No, it's so interesting. And we, we, I was having this conversation the other day. Say again, sorry. Don't follow the herd. Oh, God, completely. And But back to what we were saying earlier, or linking up the dots, or connecting the dots, is we're having this conversation, I suppose, versus data versus emotion. And we're like, should we spend money doing an in-store sampling session where we're literally with the customer, telling them the story, getting them passionate, getting them to try it, tell, you know, everything, or give out, you know, 150 mini pots in one of those, like, imagine like a little jam thing you'd get. And obviously data would say, do that decision because it pays back on the P&L, right? Or it's, it's, it's easy to to say, oh, we made X, boom, 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 boom. But I was like, and I think we, as a business, we came to the conclusion that actually the first interaction with the brand and the human connection is so much more important. And it is so much, if we have a good connection, they try the product face-to-face, they're going to tell their friends, which will then, I suppose, if we're looking at the content traffic conversion thing, if that content's great, they'll tell more of their friends, which will drive traffic. So that's, no, that's brilliant. I, I love that, Roger. Thank you. Uh, regarding products because you've got to sit down you, you know if you if you got to sit down if you've got a small company you've got you've got to do your 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 strengths weak, weaknesses opportunities and threats and you've got to go you know one of your your major weak weaknesses is it's going to be your size and your ability to bring it to market mm. but that could be your strength your ability to make decisions quickly right so then you've got to design your product and you've got to go look if we do a bog standard product, we're not going to compete everyone else. Let us try and do a product that, you know, that's not available or is it a variation of that, for instance? You know, it, it's, and you've got to understand what your customer wants. You know, okay. It's, and, and it doesn't mean that you have to reinvent the tree. Let's take the example of, of fever tree versus uh, sweats. You know, Sweats were the dominant, you know, tonic in the market. Every time you got gin and tonic, it was almost going to be Sweats. And they, Fever Tree just came along and just said, but we can make a better one. Our, our content is going to be better. But you've got to be brave enough to do that. Mm. The rest is history. No, love it. And I, I think for listeners, um, it's lead, not getting bogged down into what the big guys are doing. What You know, don't look for anyone else, but also focusing on your strength which is our ability to move fast like any most people listening to this is they if they've got a, um, an idea for a new product they can move quick there's no corporate red tape they can release that quick and move so i think that's that's brilliant roger i i, I yeah or it might be remember 
your strength might be creating traffic. And in that case, you don't need to create the best product. You just need to create a good product. Mm. So an example of that is a lot. An example of that is Jake Paul, right? Classic example, right? Mm. He's got a lot of traffic. He's a YouTube star. He's a, he's a pretty average boxer. If that, okay. Yeah, it's so true. He's yeah. a lot more money than everyone else. Why? Because he can create the traffic. It's not because of his content, the boxing. Start to put those things in those boxes and you understand. But he doesn't go to promote because he can't do the conversion. So the promoter puts it on. Do you see my point? But he's no, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And I think there's so it, many parallels. And I'm yeah. just simple. And sorry, I'm just going to go back because I'm just going to actually just go full circle on some of the things I was saying about when I talked earlier and I was talking about, and it's, I did a poll recently on LinkedIn and, and um, I don't think people realised the purpose of was doing that poll. poll. It's been quite ambiguous. And the poll was, why are you in business? You know, what is your why? I think, you know, based on that book, you know, so, and is, is, is the reason you're in business because it makes you feel better? It's, it's about your ego, but people don't like that word. But, you know, or are you in business to set up a business to give it to your children, which there's a lot of people that are, you know, that traditionally a lot of people would do that. Or are you in business to make money. And I was amazed on this poll that I ran because I think most or other, I think less than 20% of people said they were in business to make money. I think it was the least uh, favourite choice. You know, and I just found that unbelievable because if you get answers back like, oh, I want to save the world, you know, or I want to create a better world, you know, that's your ego. That's mm. you just making yourself feel better. That's why you're in business. In the same way, when I first set up my business, it was something I was suddenly good at. I was able to go, I'm Mr. Box Fresh or whatever I am, you know, it made me feel better. But what I realized over time was that it's okay to say you're, you should set up a business to sell a business. That's what I believe. Because don't be ashamed of making money. Because it's how you make your money and how you spend your money that will define you. But for entrepreneurs to go out there and only one in five of them to say they're in business to make money, I find it unbelievable. Like I, I think that people like Warren Buffett and 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 um, uh, 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 Gates, you know, Bill Gates. They've given 95% of their, their money away to charities. You know, if you can got the, the Gates Foundation trying to get rid of malaria and, and loads of other things, okay? Well, they're doing more for giving back, but they weren't unashamed about making money in the first place. And I think you have to ask your why when you go into business. What is your reason to go into business? Because I will tell you, if not, you're going to have happened what happened to me. 15 years are going to go by, you know, and then you're going to realise your why is to create security for your 
your family, you know, and you want to set up the business. But if I knew that 10 years earlier or 15 years earlier, I would have started a bit earlier to do that journey. But understand your why and why you're in business. You know, really deep down understand your why. You know, and, and don't say the why that sounds really great. It's cheesy. We all heard that crap before. We don't believe it. Be honest with yourself. You know, there's, there's you know, it's almost, not- it's almost like virtue signaling your why, which is really yeah. putrid because it's like, well, externally at least, it's like our why. And if it's not authentic, then you're not, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And I think that's, again, for listeners, it's like, when you create a why, like if you're looking or reading what everyone else's why is, again, go back to like, you know, don't look at what anyone else is doing. You're just going to carbon copy some crap, which is like, which isn't authentic. So I think, I don't know, I, I do a lot of meditation. I think from doing that, you can really dig deep into what, like yeah. you pull back all the layers of everything. And that's where you find your kind of what, what your actual why is. And I think and again, that's why at the moment, you know, well, it feels like that. Yeah. You've, you started, yes, in food and drink. I'm sure that's going well, but you've obviously gotten a passion for this podcast. So you've got to now figure out how to monetize that passion for the podcast and how you make your product better and better and better. But clearly you're enjoying it because you're doing it for free at the moment and and you're learning a lot from it. But you, you'll look back and you go, and then suddenly I start this podcast and the next minute it really blew up. and. Yeah, came a business. That's a really familiar story. People follow their passions, and because they're so passionate about it, it, it grows. Oh, completely, completely. Um, so again, there's just there's so much to explore with this. But w- one thing you said earlier, which I thought was really really interesting, was you said you you were an uncontrolled you had uncontrolled passion as an entrepreneur, but you were a pretty poor leader. What I want to kind of explore now is almost connecting the dots of, of Box Fresh to, to, to Box Park and some of the fundamental leadership lessons you've learned as, as you've transitioned. Um, so when you say uncontrolled passion, what do you mean by that? Well, and why, uh, and know, why was that detrimental, I suppose? Or not? Yeah. It's massively detrimental in my first business. I, I think, and that's, you know, why I'm sort of referring to the subject. I think because I, because I set up Box Fresh, I think, largely to to really fill the insecurities of being unemployed or 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 wanting to get back, wanting to be successful, coming from South London, from you know, moving from a, a wealthy background, I guess, Malaysia to a council estate in South London. That you know, it 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 really drove me to towards sort of success, but I was doing it more out of ego. And what I didn't realise at the time, or I didn't have the ability to control, was you need to bring along a team. And, you know, and it's, it's, I think a lot of entrepreneurs need to make a lot of soul searching inside of them. And just because you're a good entrepreneur, it doesn't make you a great leader. And I definitely was that case. You know, my first business I think I was a really poor leader, but a very good entrepreneur. And in my second business, I think Box Park, second major business, Box Park, I was a a good entrepreneur, but I was also a a better leader. And that's because I recognised 
that I needed to bring people on board with me in this journey for it to grow. And I've been lucky enough recently, you know, my I've supported my team in terms of, of creating share options for them. And, and we're in the pro, we've just raised major private equity from LDC and I won't always be there as, as, as the CEO of the company. I will probably move over to becoming the, the executive chairman of the company or, or an NED in the company, you know. I'll hand over the reins of the company. And I'm getting as much pleasure from that as I did before sort of being in charge because I, I'm, in, I'm really enjoying helping people and, work, you know, seeing them grow. And I've, I've only recently, in the past three, four years, I've taken leadership training, taken personal coaching, you know, really tried to become a better leader. And I've seen enormous um, results from that, not only in being able to, to create a great management team around me, but also just to let go and just... You know, after 30 years of being in business, or 25 certainly, I suddenly realised the art of being a leader is to, you make the decisions or you you might make the final decision based upon a recommendation. But actually, you need to give the control to everyone else and you need to sit back because if you get too deeply involved with everything, you don't have an overview and you're not leading. You're just interfering, you know, and you, you have to lose your ego. You have to let go of your ego and, and and say to yourself, look, you know, I need to teach these people to do their jobs better. I need to teach these people to catch their own fish rather than I fish for them, you know, and, and as a result of that, our business has got better and, you know, we've, People enjoying their work at Box Park. I, I work a lot less than I ever did, you know, and I have time for things like podcasts. And I also want to give back to the industry, you know, and it, it, you know, I'm coming near to the end of my entrepreneurial career because I want it to be that way. I don't want my whole life to be defined by the businesses I set up. I, I want to be say, right, I've done that, the business thing. I want to now become the best individual I can be. And, you know, if that is going off on a yoga and a meditation retreat in, in Sri Lanka to become a better person, then I'll try that, you know. But my focus is not going to be all about business. And let me tell you, for certainly the majority of my business life, I've been totally obsessed with my businesses to the detriment of other parts of my life. And I've made some sacrifices, which I don't think I would make now, because you, you, you have to have that obsession. But then you've got to ask yourself, why do you have that obsession? Why are you doing that? What, what is driving you? You know, I just don't feel a need to prove anymore. I don't need to be in charge. You know, I'm just happy to let other people then I get more from that. You know, but I do... You know, I won't, without naming names, I do see entrepreneurs out there on LinkedIn and everything. And then, you know, look at me and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I'm like, so, you know, you don't need to just, just sit back. Haven't you got enough? Do you think that's because you've now, through time and experience, you've come to peace with some of those early insecurities? 
and that's how you've you yeah yeah i've i've taken you know you know i've taken the time (laughs) to 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 work on it you know to understand Mm. and you do you know i have you know i'm i'm lucky i've got a really good family i've got you know amazing wife you know far too good for me great you know great children who keep me on my toes and I've got a great team around me. I'm really probably enjoying my entrepreneurial career at, at you know, more than I've ever have. And, and I'm at the same time probably spending less time working. Mm. But, you know, and, yeah, I do understand some of the ways I was before and what I, what I was like and what I'm now like. I'm not saying I've completely resolved it, but I've, I've definitely become a better leader. You know, not perfectly, but better one. And I yeah. And so, so just for listeners who are who are leaders or who are in the process of building teams. So, yeah. other other than you know letting go and what you said there of of leading versus interfering, I thought was terrific. Is there anything else that makes a really good leader that you could pass on to to listeners? I think I think you've got to you know, going back to that early questions of asking your why and what you really want to do within an or, your own organisation. I think if you leave your ego at the doorstep of your business and actually make decisions based upon your why, I think sometimes the businesses would benefit better. So in my case, I'm probably, I, I definitely in the past was probably better as a sort of, product man and marketing man but let someone else run the business in my current business i'm lucky enough to have a a great cfo that works alongside me he's really good at the business side of things a really good head of operations that's really good at delivering the operation something i find you know (laughs) just haven't got patience for Mm. you know and we make a great team you know Mm. and and I recognize that. So I think what I would say to those entrepreneurs is recognize within you, you know, it's okay for you to say, I'm a great ideas person. I'm a great entrepreneur, but I'm not a good leader of businesses. And, I, and it's weird. I see a lot of people now that I go, you know, and some of my mates, I go, you're great ideas, man, but you shouldn't be running it company you're not you haven't got the skill set to run your company that's not a detriment because there's also things you've got that no one else would have mm. you know mm. there's no, questions absolutely um so where i was how long have you got by the way roger uh, i've got like wrap up about 10 15 minutes say yeah yeah perfect yeah. just just yeah because i i've realized that we've it's quite well we've gone on probably more but it's this i'm really enjoying this um so so where i wanted to kind of go now as we have discussed this is is um <clears throat> is box park um but also what i picked up from your uh holly holly tocker um yeah. podcast was a oh, quote no. yeah it was it was that was honestly one of the best she's yes yeah, absolutely right. brilliant um so what I want to explore now is Box Park and this this piece of advice you're given by Ted DeCruz. I think I've said that. Hopefully I've said that right. Is you've always got to be special to your customer. If you're not, you won't exist. And I think that is absolutely brilliant. 
Um, in terms of Box Park, how do you how do you actually implement that for the customer at Box Park? Because it seems like it's such a big moving thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, for those viewers that are out there that don't, don't know who Ted DeCruz is or even who Holly is. I mean, Ted DeCruz was a brand consultant that I met when I was a very young entrepreneur, about the age of 25, maybe my late 20s. And at the time, he was one of the biggest brand consultants in the world. I think he was working for Wolf Hollands as their brand director at the time. He's gone on some massive jobs, you know, like huge jobs. You know, he would get asked to reimagine the future of like banks or hospitals or something like that. It's something crazy again. And I remember meeting him and he is a bit of a, and I, he would mind me saying, a bit of a mad genius. You know, everything is intense when you meet Ted, you know, and his sort of intensity level was off the Richter scale. And he, he, he just sat me down and he said, Roger, if you're not, spe-, he said, in the future, you know, this is going back 30 years, if you're not special to your customer, you won't exist. And they just, stuck with me that was the mantra that i used throughout my whole career then just oh, be special customer be completely obsessed by the customer so in in the example of box park it comes back to um the product traffic conversion i'm always looking at the tip of the iceberg i've always all my careers i've been a product marketer a brand man that's where i've been because that's the bit that the customer can see. So I'm obsessed, you know, with the customer experience, the making it special, okay? And in, in our example, and I'll talk to you about the example of my obsession with that, is I would go and see every site that we own minimum once, once, once a week, say. I'd go and walk it individually. Sometimes I make surprise visits, but certainly once a week, I'd go to a site. And if I go to a site, I would look at every bit of detail. I would walk the floor with the, the manager and I would notice anything. I would notice from a, an air conditioning unit being in the wrong place. I would notice if the lights are not right. I would notice if the sound level was not right. I would notice if the staff are just on their phones. I would notice if the Christmas decorations, which I just went to view yesterday, were not correct. So I'm obsessed with the customer experience. And in hospitality, it really is about lighting and sound and, and heating or cool or or the ambience, shall we say, is critical. And the next bit that's really important is the food. So what's the quality of the food like? What's the quality of the drinks like? What's the quality of the events like? And I would have sign-off on all of those, you know. And it is difficult now because I can't be everywhere, but I can sort of sign it off and have a quick look at Google or whatever. So the bit, I would be really focused at Box Park on food, drink, the events that we have on, the the environment that we have, the marketing that we produce, anything that the customer sees, I would be all over, you know. It wouldn't be unusual for a Christmas banner that was going to go up to come across my table for approval, and I'd go, yeah, that's fine, you know. Or if somebody's worded today, they worded 
a digital banner, weirdly, and I went, what's the deal with the wording there? So descriptive. Descriptive is meant to be an advert. So that sort of detail, you know, to, to mm. going in the toilets and having a look and checking the toilets is good, you know, is a right environment. I had to be careful my words now. I was going to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, it's so... So it's, it's that session with being special to your customer and looking at everything. And I would have carried that all through my working career to when at Box Fresh, designing every single, you know, signing off every single design of the product, viewing every sample that was produced, you know, making sure it was in a good outlet to our sales team, making sure the marketing was right and attracting the right traffic. You know, it's just anything the customer sees, that's where you'll find me, you know. And if it's if it's talking about balance sheet, if it's talking about HR issues, you won't see me close to it. I'll leave it to other people to do. Yeah, and I suppose that almost comes back from your, well, through emotional intelligence and reducing kind of your ego yeah. plus time, you're learning to figure out to play where... Well, I interviewed someone... Um, uh, I interviewed Luke Bose, who's founder of Lucky Saint, an alcohol-free beer brand, the other day, and he he was his previous guest, and he said one of his biggest lessons was only do the thing only you can do. And I think what you've said there about the tip of the iceberg is brilliant, whereas you don't get distracted with HR or no. And I think there's so much in that for founders. There's one of of, of this or listeners of this podcast. There's one obsessed with the customer. And and this is an advantage where the big brands can't do it as much because they can't be as close to the customer in many ways. And too many too, yeah, too many way too many layers. layers. Yeah, too many organizational layers. Like in our company, literally, a decision would come across me every week. We meet the management team, and it wouldn't be rare for us to make a decision in one minute. Go, yeah, we're doing that. Let's stick to that. That's it. It wouldn't be a big discussion. It'd be like, I would trust my feelings and go, let's oh, let's do oh. that. And then, and then going, going back to what the, the guy said from Lucky Saints, I have something similar, which is, you know, in business, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just got to make sure our wheel is turning a bit better than our competitors. Mm-hmm. So that's, we focus, we just want to be a bit better than everyone else at what we do. Mm-hmm. That's that's all we try to do. You know, that's brilliant forward we're never we're never just rest, resting our laurels it's constantly what can we do to make it better what can we do mm-hmm. now i love connecting the dot well connecting the dots of uh with previous uh guests as well because charlie bigham came on and he said his whole thing is one percent better every week every month every year plus time equals a pretty bloody good business and i think you you kind of have facets of that within inbox Box Park and Box Fresh. Um, Rogers, I'm, I'm conscious of your time here. So there's a, a there's an area that I've got to explore out of pure curiosity here because I'm, I'm an avid, yeah, avid, avid foodie. But so, so what, I mean, walking through and, and eating and drinking at Box Park, it's like such an eclectic mix of these amazing indie retailers. And you just feel because it's indie, it's small and the food's amazing. It, it does feel special, right? But I suppose... What, what does food mean to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, I'll, I'll be frank with you. I, I've not come at this from a, a foodies, you know, angle. You know, my, yeah, 
one of my best friends is Bill from Bills, you know. And mm. he, he's, he's a foodie. He's like obsessed with food, you know, and, and he'll talk about food. I've not come from it, from that background. I've come from a, uh, a branding sort of more background. Okay, so when we originally set up Box Park, it was really meant to be a retail development for, for, for street wear and sports fashion, but it was the street food that took off. So, you know, the, the reality is, is there's such similarity between street fashion and street food. And why? It's just another trend. It's just, it is, street wear was always about breaking down the layers of the fashion industry and just saying, actually, fashion was accessible to anyone. And you didn't need to be a fashion designer. It's great, great fashion. You just need to look around you and, 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 it was, it was sometimes the products were there. So, for instance, we brought brands like Carhartt to the UK. We brought brands like Penfield to the UK. And definitely and Pen, Carhartt was an American workwear brand and Penfield was an, an American mountaineering sort of brand or an outdoor brand. Okay, so we were just, we weren't fashion trained. Yeah, my two designers went and did a textile, did, did a textile degree, but I certainly wasn't. So... With, with street food, I saw the same similarities. With, with street food, you've got often young independents that just want to create a new type of food that they love, but they don't have the classical training or the infrastructure, and they just want to be focused on the food. So I think Black Bear Burger is a great example of that. You know, They just want to focus on the food. So we let those guys just focus on the food. And we do everything else for them. We provide the traffic to them. You know, they focus on their content, the food. We do the digital marketing. We do the cleaning. We do the toilets. We do all the council things for them. They've only got to focus on food. You know, we even get the delivery contracts, most of the guys, or provide the POS. So it, it's, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to you, that, you know, my, as I said to you before, my daughter's a massive foodie. She'll tell you about, you know, if I go to a restaurant, she'll order for me because she'd go, Dad, no, you want to have this, this is what you have, this is famous for this, X, Y, Z, and this chef worked here and it used to be from there. It's 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 you know, it's it that's not me. I just I'm 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 just more about the food. But one of the things that is common with Box Fresh is I wanted to break down the layers of elitism when it came to food. And it's the same with Box Fresh. I remember feeling intimidated back in the day of going into Jones and Floral Street and, you know, as a spotty sort of South London kid and, and not feeling as though I fitted in because I didn't have my Japanese Fujiwara suit on, right? And I had that same feeling when I'm going to, you know, a really nice restaurant, you know, uh, Trois Garçon or whatever, you know, and that feeling, feeling of elitism. And I, I want to break that down. I think that, that good food should be affordable to everyone and available to everyone. So I'm really inspired by like that, that, that street food uh, show on Net, Netflix where you've got, you know, this, the 80-year-old the Thai lady who can make the best noodles or whatever, you know. It's, or Hawker Chan from Singapore, you know. I'm, I'm inspired by people who provide great food at a great price and it's accessible. And that's the common theme between those businesses for me. I love the idea of just providing food at an accessible 
um, and it's accessible to everyone and not just food, food, drink and entertainment. You know, it's, you know, come to, I love the fact that, that we go to areas like Croydon and Wembley. It's, 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 you know, it's not hard to do well in Shoreditch. It's, it's, there's traffic, but it's really hard to do well in Croydon when people weren't believing in Croydon. It's really hard to do well in Wembley Park when people weren't going to Wembley Park. But, you know, providing them great street food and watching them come out to Box Park, that's been fantastic. There's, I'm just, I love, well, again, sort of connecting the dots with this, but I love it how you answered there saying you're not like an avid foodie. And, and what we were discussing previously, like just authentically knowing your why, and you've just, uh, you just completely said that. And I absolutely love that. And then also what we said, uh, discussing earlier about, you know, the insecurities and you said, you know, you're a spotty, spotty kid, you know, trying to get access to the clothes and uh, sorry, to the, these restaurants. And I, I love it how it's all sort of piecing together. It's like, you've just unapologetically said like, this is my why. And I, and I absolutely love it, but it's kind of ties in with some of those, um, early insecurities as well. And I just think there's so much, I think the key from this conversation for me is just knowing your why, but, but, but ignoring all the kind of I don't know, just the virtue signaling wise that are going out there at the minute. Um, all right. So uh, just it's a couple of things. Say that because as you're talking about that, you know, it does make me realize that your insecurities drive you on mm. and, it, and then they've driven on some other, some of the biggest entrepreneurs that ever existed as I said before. So don't mm. run away from those insecurities. That's part of your DNA. That's going to give you the passion to go forward because that's what you really need as an entrepreneur. You need to, when you get knocked down to get back up, if it's, if I was to say one trait I had, it's that it's just persistence. I would just get back up, get back up, get back up. And I would knock at that door, knock at that door, knock at that door until that door opened. What was the check time? Okay. A few more minutes. Um, so, uh, so what with with that what was the hardest like door you had to knock down in your career where you had to be the most persistent because i think everyone listening to this will have to knock down doors like there's no end so they could take some i think you you know in 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 the fashion business and in it i think there's a lot of egos and there's a lot of snobbery so you know a lot of viewers out there won't realize that what, what would happen, actually, is that if, if you stocked your product in one store, for instance, okay, and, you know, other brands or if you wanted to buy that product and they really had a stockist in the area, they wouldn't sell to you. There would be a lot of elitism or you would get a call from a stockist going, I don't want you selling there, you know, mm, mm. and if you sell to more than one place, we're going to drop you. And, you know, there were some real bullies in the, in the industry when it, when it came to that, you know, this sort of, and we're talking about challenges here. And the same is in the, in the way I see that in the food world, there is food snobbery out there of like, Oh, you know, you know, our, our food's this, and we've won this awards and X, Y, Z. I don't give a damn. I really don't. I only care about the quality of your food, you know. And if if I've got a kid 
that's making the greatest product and no one knows him, I still go with him, you know. And when I talk about breaking down the, the barriers, it's those barriers of the institutional snobbery that exists and which exists in the food business. It exists in, in the food and drink business. It exists in the fashion business, you know. I, I, I remember uh, when we first set up Box Park, okay, I remember a very well-known retail group that had a store round the corner from us ringing up all the brands saying that if you stock them, uh, your product in uh, Box Park, we're going to stop selling you, right? Right. And, and I was just disgusted by that. We were like a young, small business. They were a huge American business that had loads of stores in America and were over here in the UK. And I was like, why do you need to do that? You know, it's disgusting behavior. They literally rang up and it's all our stockings said, you can't stop them. Why? What, what, what were you worried about? We weren't going to make a dent in them, you know. And in the same way, you have the same sort of snobbery exists within food. You know, you have, oh, you know, uh, they haven't got this brand, they haven't got that brand, or, it, you know... <laughs> The customer doesn't care. What the customer cares about ultimately is the product. And if the product is really good, it's not so much the name above the door that really matters or the Michelin stars that you've got. I'm more, as I said, I'm more turned on by watching that, that street food show on Netflix than I am by watching MasterChef or by, um, by watching some Michelin star chef. I'm, you know... It's, it's, it's the best product. So those are the difficult barriers that you have mm. to break down sometimes. No, for sure. I mean, I went to a place in uh, where was it? Uh, I think yeah, Houston on Sunday. Roti King, like the best Malaysian food, yeah. and it's and it's so small. It's underground. There's queues outside, yeah. and I'm like, that's that great. is that's what it's about. That's what yeah. they had actually ironically run out of rotty. The, the kitchen, the, the <laughs> machine had broken, um, but it was actually really, really good. What we did have, um, amazing. So, Roger, I just want to finish on some quick fire questions that I ask um, okay. most, well, most guests. Yeah. Um, so the first is I ask this to all guests who've got kids because it, it invokes quite an interesting lens to look yeah. through. Um, so, what is some of the advice you give to to your kids as they're about to embark out on? Well, or I'm probably barking out onto the world. Really, sadly, it's advice I give that they don't listen to. And so my, my, my son is 17 and he's, he's a budding artist and he's very strong-minded creatively. And um, my daughter's 22 and she's studying business at Trinity, a master's at Trinity, and, and she's from a business perspective, very smart. And the lesson that I tried to give them both was the lesson that I didn't learn when I was younger. And I wish I taught it to my younger self, which is the ability to listen, just stop and listen and listen to people and take the time to listen. Stop thinking, you know, best always. And I see this, you know, it's, it's something I still need to get better at. And it's such a skill, listening. And you can learn so much from other people through listening. And hopefully your viewers today 
not being too bored and they, they, they'll listen to this because I think I'm just trying to impart on them some of the things I've learned, you know, honestly to them over a 30 plus year entrepreneur, entrepreneurial career. That's absolutely brilliant. And I, I think um, it's such, it's such a superpower, especially with this, again, going back to this insecurity and ego, when you've got insecurity plus ego, the last thing you want to do is listen. But if you can relinquish that, you listen, you, you let go, I suppose, as you, man, as you lead as well. It's, it's brilliant. Um, it's very said that because it, it's very what sorry it's astute what you just said because oh. i think i think you talk a lot when you're nervous you know and it's it takes strength to sometimes just sit back and only say a few things but they're they're, they're wise things you know and it, it just it's it and it's understandable it's it's not something that comes naturally i don't think it's, it's definitely not come naturally to me and i hope it comes more naturally to my children but at, at the rate we're going <laughs> no no yeah it, it, they're strong amazing um and so the other question is so what is that one question early stage founders should be asking themselves um that if they did would pour gasoline on their growth so sorry that they're not asking themselves enough that if they did would pour gasoline on their growth well, I think just it goes back full circle to what I said at the very beginning, which is really understand your why. You know, I, as I said, I only think there's three whys to be in business. One's to make money, two's to hand over to your family, and three it is to um, for your ego. And be be and you know within that ego thing is the whole thing of making a better world X Y Z and. You hear it all because that's all. That's all about self gratification. Mm. In the end, no matter which way you say it. Sorry, I'm being really frank. No, no, no. Um, you know, or you're, you're you're saving the planet. You know, it's again self gratification, letting everyone know you're saving the, the planet. Just know your why. Be really, really careful if your why is your ego, because I'm not sure that running a business is the best place to improve your ego. It really, you know, I would suggest there might be cheaper ways of dealing with your ego than running a business. So I, I would say that would be a really, really key lesson to any budding entrepreneur out there. And then, you know, and also just the, the point I made about leadership, which is, just because you're a good entrepreneur, don't be ashamed to say you're not a great leader and a natural leader. And then try yourself, try to surround yourself with people that fill in your weaknesses. That's okay. Just admit that you're not great at that. You know, it takes strength to admit that you're not great at that, you know. So just remember that not all entrepreneurs are great leaders. They're really not. Look at Steve Jobs. I think he was a pretty poor i think elon musk is a pretty poor leader i don't know i think he only wants to control from the fact he's leading certainly as a leader of people i don't think it's very good you know he seems to get a lot of trouble you know but as an entrepreneur i think it's absolutely off the richter scale you know so he's got to find somebody that will balance him well you know and go from there i, I don't i don't know why he feels the need to to be out there so much. If I was him, I'd be sitting back a lot more, you yeah. know, and just on with, with what I'm doing. Stop being a big 
No, for sure. So, so final question, I think it, it sort of, it ties in or connects the dots to this whole conversation, but I wrote it down earlier. It's like, what, what is your why kind of now? And as you move, um, you know, you said, you said I had, I had, I was mixed Mr. Box fresh. And then you said, now I suppose you're Mr. Box park, but there's going to come a point when you're not tied to that. And I'd love to know what that Rogers why is then. So, you know, my, my, my why when I was in business was uh, to, to run a business to create financial stability for um, myself, my family, and, 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 and my friends, I guess, you know. So I've been lucky enough to reach that milestone of, you know, I've got that financial stability. And I think sort of, Going forward, I, I, I want to focus on becoming a better person, you know, in, I'm not saying I'm a bad person, but everyone can be a better person. So I want to focus on, on things that are not defined by work, where before it was almost everything worked around my work. I now want everything to work around <laughs> personal objectives as opposed to business objectives so you know become a better dad a better husband a better person you know you only live once get to see some great things in 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 the last sort of third of my life i guess you know and experience great things and 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 live life in a happy and peaceful way no, that's amazing. Um, no, I, I've absolutely loved that, uh, Roger. There's just so much in it. I think this whole idea of relinquishing your ego and insecurities um, to kind of to find your authentic why is is one part. But then I also think using your insecurities as like a furnace to drive drive you forward. It's a bit of a contradiction, but I think that's that's some of the, the key things I've learned from this. I've absolutely uh, loved talking to you, and I really appreciate you giving us the time. You're welcome, Dan. It's an absolute pleasure. And I wish you all the best in what you're doing. And I hope I haven't bored the viewers too much. No, no, it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for listening to the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. If you like that episode, only if you liked it, please do give it five stars. Subscribe. Tell all your friends, families, foes, next door but one, cat, dog, whatever. Please tell everyone about this podcast. It means the world to me. And I really want to understand what your pain points are as the new wave of, of Challenger Food and Drink brands. Please do hit me up on LinkedIn, search Dan Pope, and hopefully we can together create a more meaningful and powerful podcast for the next wave of Challenger Food and Drink brands. Thank you so much. Thank you.